for joining me for the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. So I don't know about you, but I spend a lot of time trying to avoid bad things. Trauma, danger, accidents, pain, suffering, physical, emotional pain. I'm doing my best to stay as far away from that stuff as possible. And I think that's a pretty rational way to live, which is why I was really interested to receive and read Steve Taylor's latest book, which is called Extraordinary Awakenings, subtitle When Trauma Leads to Transformation. And his argument is based on personal experience and lots of research. He's a um, clinical psychologist at Leeds University and has interviewed lots of people who have had traumatic experiences that broke them or nearly broke them, and they emerged uh, awakened to a different set of possibilities in life and a different way of being. So we got on the phone to talk about it. There's also a video. If you want to go to plantyourself.com slash 505, you can watch us uh, on the video as well. But um, it's a really interesting idea that the things that are the most challenging in our lives, and, and there were people there who had you know years in prison, uh, near-death experiences, suicidal thoughts, incredibly horrific wartime experiences, that some, not all, but some of these people emerged stronger, happier, kinder, and awake to other possibilities in life. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So without further ado... Steve Taylor, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Hi, Howie. Great to be with you. Yeah. So you have written an extraordinary book called Extraordinary Awakenings. You've written a bunch of extraordinary books. This is the only one that I've read. Um, <laughs> and the subtitle is When Trauma Leads to Transformation. My first question is, so um, who, who are you to write this book? What's what's your life experience and professional experience that, that led you to have this um, series of insights? It started with um, an experience of serious illness, which I had about 15 years ago uh, when I, um, well, I, w I won't go into details about the illness itself, but, w but when I recovered, when I was, as, I was, as I was recovering from the illness, I felt this amazing sense of gratitude to my body as it was healing. And I felt this renewed sense of appreciation for everything in my life, you know, for the people in my life, mm. for the simple things in life, like just walking and seeing nature and just eating and drinking, all of the, the very simple things that we normally take for granted. I became aware of uh, how precious and valuable they are. So this experience of serious illness, I felt as though it shifted me into a higher level of appreciation. And it shifted, shifted me into a sort of a place where trivial worries and anxieties no longer bothered me as much. I felt as though I had this wider sense of perspective you know, I had this sense that, you know, certain things were more important, like love, creativity, personal development, and certain things were less important, you know, uh, like the kind of day-to-day -day stuff and, you know, cl climbing the ladder of achievement, getting on in your career, that kind of thing. So I had this wider sense of perspective, this heightened sense of appreciation. And it inspired me to research similar experiences in people who, not just in serious illness, but also in, in uh, contexts of um, imprisonment, addiction, bereavement, all kinds of intense trauma. So I, I, I became a psychologist. I am now a psychologist professionally, partly because I wanted to, in, I wanted to investigate these experiences. And that has been the main theme of my research over the past 15 years or past 10 years since I've been a practicing mm -hmm. psychologist. Gotcha. So, so you were patient zero for your own research. Exactly. I was the first participant of my research here. Yeah. What were you doing at that point before you became a psychologist? I was, um, I was, I did a lot of different things. I was a musician uh, in my twenties, in my sort of late teens and twenties. And then once I realised that you know the musician's lifestyle wasn't really for me, uh, I decided <laughs> to. Uh, I became a, a college tutor. I taught I taught people with uh, learning difficulties at college. And so I was kind of vaguely involved in the area of psychology, but I realized at a certain point that, you know, I wanted to get involved in a field called transpersonal psychology, which is kind of spiritual psychology. So I realized I became more and more aware that that was what I was really interested in. And I was starting to write and to write about topics related to spirituality and psychology. So that was the field that, 
that I felt I belonged in. Mm. So one of the things that really has struck me about the, the, the book is there's an implicit um, acceptance of a higher reality than just our physical material reality. I know psychology is is a science and it's grounded in sort of the materialist objective Western worldview. And I'm curious how how comfortable you were at the beginning and, and, and became sort of bringing in this, you know, the transpersonal stuff and things that can't be sort of measured in a, in a test tube or on a scale. I, I'd always, I've always had personal experiences of a kind of wider reality. You know, I've always had spiritual experiences uh, from a young age, from, from being a teenager, you know, moments in which my awareness would become more intense and I'd sense that there was more to the world than we are normally aware of. Not in terms of, you know, mystical or esoteric things, just that reality was sort of more intense and, um, you know, more expansive than we're normally aware of. Because I had this feeling that normal human human consciousness is quite limited. It's like being in in a room and a lot of people forget there's anything outside the room. But once you experience higher states of consciousness, then you realize that it is just a room and there's, you know, you're living in a, a much wider reality with lots of space and lots of other rooms outside it. So I think of, you know, one of the roles, you know, one of the important roles of psychology is to study higher states of consciousness, to work out, you know, why is normal, normal human consciousness limited and to study those situations where, where our consciousness does become more intense. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why I'm interested in these experiences of transformation through turmoil, because they are, these experiences are a shift into a wider and more intense reality, which becomes permanent for some people. Mm-hmm. All right. And so um, the, that idea of permanence really stuck with me because I know, you know, I've had moments where I felt like, oh, man, I understand the world. I know my place in it. I'm at peace. All that hubbub of my life I can see as, as chatter and, and distraction. And I'm, I'm just like totally expansive. And I, and I, you know, I'd like walk down the street and I would, like my heart would go out to every stranger I met. And I'm just like, you know, this total embodiment of the Buddha. Mm-hmm. And then like, you know, half an hour later, like someone would <laughs> run a red light and it would all dissipate. And yeah. all I was left with was like the, the, the gaping void of, oh, I had something and it's gone. But what, what you're talking about in these extraordinary awakenings is sort of um, pers- a persistent transformation that may not remain at that height but mm, nevertheless, mm. never quite goes away. That's right. A lot of people say that they, you know, they, they shift into this intense state of consciousness and they expect it to, to be impermanent. And it does fade a little bit, it becomes slightly less intense, but it kind of stabilizes at a slightly lower level of intensity and becomes their normal experience. And it, it is almost like they're, they're waking up. It's like they're waking up to a heightened level of appreciation, they're waking up to a kind of reality when things just seem more real and more beautiful and more fascinating. And when, you know, the kind of egoic, trivial problems that I mentioned before no longer seem important. And it's a new orientation that there's a, there's a shift in orientation between kind of, I think the normal mode is to sort of take from the world and to, to get, to accumulate mm. things. But in this mode, there's a sense that you, you give to the world. The purpose of life is to give to the world, not to take. And not to accumulate, but sorry, yeah, not to not to accumulate, but to contribute. And um, yeah, I've, I've met people who've been in the state for fifty years. You know, people who underwent a transformation when they were quite young, and it, it does seem to remain. You know, no matter, you know, and obviously life still can involve challenges, but nothing seems to be powerful enough to you know to take people back down to the their, their previous state of consciousness. So when I meet someone who my sense is sort of spiritually evolved in that way, and they're, you know, at peace around most of the things that piss me off, and they're, you know, everybody feels good to be around them, I think, boy, what, what I, I want that. And I know most of us <clears throat> want that kind of state. And yet the paradox of, of what you've discovered is that most of us have to be dragged kicking and screaming into situations and environments that allow that to happen? Well, this is one way in which spiritual awakening can occur. 
And I think there are three ways in which spiritual awakening can actually occur. I wrote about this in a previous book called The Leap. And spiritual awakening can just be natural to some people. They don't have to do anything. They don't have to meditate. They don't have to go through turmoil and trauma. They just are naturally spiritually awakened. It's just their normal state. Mm. Those people sometimes become poets or, or artists. And the, the second way in which it can occur is when it's it's something that you cultivate gradually through following a spiritual practice or a spiritual path. Or it could be something that naturally arises in you due to the way you live. And if you live a life of service or a lifestyle of, you know, kind of a job where you have to give constant mindful attention to your experiences and your activities, then that can give rise to gradual spiritual awakening. And the third way is when it occurs suddenly and dramatically through intense trauma. Um, which is, and I think, I think it's definitely a lot more common than most people realize. But probably the second way is probably the most common way in which spiritual awakening occurs when it's gradual over a long period of time through practices and paths. Right. I mean, one of the things you point out at the beginning is that this state that we that is so desirable that most most people are not going to meditate for for years and years and years. Um, and yet, the, you know, that there are pathways that, right, we like we can we learn from people who have gone through these extraordinary awakenings through great trauma without like, can we mm. skip the trauma part? Are there, are <laughs> yeah. There, are there lessons C certainly. for the rest of us? Certainly. Yeah, that, that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because I, I wanted to find out why this transformation occurs. I wanted to find out the basic principles of this transformation and then apply them to our own spiritual development. So, so I suggest that there are three or actually four ways in which we can apply this transformation. And one of them is through, you know, changing the attitude with which we respond to crises and challenges. Because every challenge or crisis in our lives has transformational potential. There's a phenomenon you've probably heard of called post-traumatic growth in, in conventional society, psychology, which investigates, you know, the, the developmental potential of trauma. And it shows that almost half of people who go through trauma will experience some positive after effects. Mm -hmm. So what I call transformation through turmoil is a kind of radical form of post-traumatic growth. So, it, so you know, it partly depends on how you respond to your trauma or turmoil. But if you respond with an attitude of acknowledgement and acceptance, then you can, you can harness the transformational potential of trauma and turmoil. And another thing is, you know, in general, acceptance uh, is a very important uh, attitude, a very important spiritual practice. And it's certainly a very important part of the transformations that people um, in my book undergo. A lot of people could pinpoint one particular moment when they shifted into a mode of acceptance, when they let go of their resistance and opened themselves to their predicament. And that was when their transformation would occur. So, so I mean, maybe it's it's because you know it's it's very easy for me to not accept little things when I have like the illusion that that I can I can keep fighting it, right? Like, you know, there's somebody in my life who's not acting the way I want them to. I could spend my entire life trying to get them to do what I want them to, but in the face of trauma, doesn't it, there comes to be like this sort of tidal wave? Like, okay, there's there's no way I can fight this. Is is that kind of the the mechanism that the, the acceptance can just be based on just overwhelming logic? It, it can reach that point. You know, in, a lot of people reach the point where they have no choice but to accept what's happened to them. Uh, one of the strange phenomena that I identified in the book is um, I found out that it's not uncommon for people who reach the point of seriously contemplating suicide or even attempting suicide to undergo transformation. I think that's because, you know, when you reach the point of seriously contemplating suicide, in a way, you've kind of given up, you've, you've, you've surrendered, you've given up hope. Mm. And, and in a paradoxical way, that giving up can release um, the transformational potential. It can sort of trigger a transformation in which your, your normal identity, your ego identity collapses or dissolves and a new ident identity emerges. So that can, that can happen after a long period of addiction too. You know, you, People sometimes struggle for years to get free of addictions. And eventually they, they may just give up. They realize that, you know, well, they, they kind of accept that they can't beat their addiction. 
And then again, in a kind of sort of paradoxical way, that in itself can make them free of the addiction. It can trigger a transformation inside them, which enables them to let go of their addiction. Mm. Um, so the I think the first chapter, no, the second chapter that you write about is around is about prison, right? People who are incarcerated and like when you when you started doing your work this this wasn't really a thing that people talked about right so you had had no idea like was this just me maybe there's a couple of other people but i think what, one of the things you found in talking to people in the prison system is that this is really common right for people who are incarcerated like way more common than we might think um but people don't That's really right. talk about it no i don't think it's an experience which most prisoners undergo, but it's certainly, you know, not uncommon. You know, a, mi- a minority of prisoners certainly do undergo this, this transformational experience. And I think it's being talked about more, but it's still, I think a lot of people keep quiet about it. In fact, I had an email from a woman yesterday. I wrote a blog about um, transformational experiences in prison for Psychology Today. And a woman wrote me an email just a couple of days ago. And she said, wow, thanks for writing about this. This happened to me 20 years ago when I was, I was in prison for 10 years. Uh, and you know i've never been the same person for the last 20 years but nobody understands it and i very rarely talk about it because i I think people some people don't really really understand what's happened to them and they're afraid that the people around them will think they're crazy which they sometimes do say if they do talk about it so they they keep quiet about it but it it is a fairly common in prison because i think it's partly because when you go to prison well you sort of obviously you have to spend a lot of time in an inactivity, a lot of time in solitude. So you're forced to go inside yourself. Well, some people anyway, some people just sort of remain at the surface where they, they feel depressed and aggressive and confused and frustrated, understandably so. But some people kind of go deeper into themselves and they start to examine themselves. They start to explore themselves because, you know, maybe there's not really much else to do. One guy told me that when he was in prison, there was so much turbulence outside him that he knew the only place he could find any well-being was to go inside himself. So he started to meditate spontaneously without really knowing what meditation was. He just started to go inside himself and, and he realized that he could find peace, a kind of peace inside himself, inside himself, which was not accessible outside. So a lot of people do that. It's, it's the beginning of a kind of inner journey and you know, self-exploration. And that leads to self-acceptance. It leads to you know, analyzing your previous behavior, feeling a sense of empathy to the people you've harmed in the past. But even more than that, when you're in prison, you have to let go because everything which constitutes your identity was outside or is outside the prison walls. So you have to let go of your possessions, your relationships, your ambitions, uh, your status, and so forth. So you have to really let go of everything which constituted your identity. So that can be a very painful experience when your identity fades away. And I think that's one reason why prison is a punishment and why some people do react very negatively to it. But for some people, letting go of your identity can be a spiritual awakening because when you let go of your identity, something new emerges inside you. A spiritually, you sort of, you gain contact with a spiritual essence, you know, the authentic spiritual core of your being. Uh, so I think that's why that's the main reason why prison can be a transformational experience. Yeah. So there's a strong tradition in many, uh, many, many spiritual paths of the ascetic of someone who drops their their life from you know from the Buddha who was the you know the prince in the palace to to kind of going out and letting go of everything to you know Cambodian monks to people on you know on the on the verge of of death, who who give up everything to the to the Christian monastic tradition, and I'm I'm wondering is is like is it possible in your experience to to let go of my identity without dropping all the, my responsibilities? Like, do I have to walk away from my wife and kids? Do I have to walk away from my job? Or can I? Is there a way to sort of drop? The, the the aspects of my identity that are keeping me from realizing my true nature and still function in the world. Yes, yes. Um, it, it's fundamentally about attachment. 
you know, it's, it's about being attached to certain external things which give you a sense of identity. So if you if you have a, a career, for example, that gives you a sense of identity. If you have a certain degree of status or achievement, or if you have certain possessions like a car or a house or lots of other possessions that you may collect, all these things give you a sense of identity. And you feel like you are somebody because you have these things. And also, also psychological things like ambitions for the future, knowledge that you've accumulated, beliefs that you have about the world, political beliefs or religious beliefs. They all give you a sense of identity. But when these things are taken away, you know, it's a bit like going back to being a prisoner. That's one reason why prison is a painful experience, because all these, these things are taken away and you feel a sense of loss and a sense of nakedness. But the things in themselves, there's nothing wrong with uh, ambitions. There's nothing wrong with possessions. There's nothing wrong with, um, you know, achievements. It's only when you are attached to them, when you derive your identity from them. So you can still have all of these things and still function in society as long as you're not attached to them, which means that you don't derive your identity or your well-being from them. You can be inwardly orientated and you can be in touch with the the kind of natural wholeness and well-being of your essence. And then you don't need to be attached to anything external. And you can, you know, you can you can live a family life, you can have a job, you can function quite well. Well, very well. Better than better than you did before. <laughs> yeah, so I'm curious about for you on a personal level. So, you know, I, I found out about you because some um, publicist sent me information like, would you like to interview Steve Taylor? He wrote this book. So obviously, you know, you're, your name's on the book. You're the author of the book. You have you are out there or have people out there sort of promoting you as a thing. I'm wondering how how you navigate you know, because it's very, it's very easy. Like, you know, my, my name's on a book. I'm like, you know, I'm pumped up with pride. Mm. You know what I'm asking? Like, how, how do you, give me some hints. How do you navigate staying in my, in your essence while you're also being called upon to sort of create a PR story to sell yourself? Well, I don't take it too seriously. I, I realize that if you have a publisher, you know, they expect you to work a little bit to promote your book. Otherwise, your next book may not be published. You know? <laughs> right. So, yeah, the important thing is not to get carried away. I have met some authors who shall remain nameless, who have got a bit carried away with themselves, you know, even spiritual authors. You know, you can tell they've got a, a bit of an ego about them, a bit puffed up by their success. But um, I've also met incredibly successful authors whose names I also won't mention, who weren't attached to their success at all, you know, who, who were very humble and, and normal. And, and that's the only way you can be. I also have a very strong sense that if I was attached to notions of success and self-importance, that it would be the end of my creativity. I think that creativity flows when you, when you are humble and when you don't take too much responsibility for it. it, it, it essentially... You know, I don't feel wholly responsible for what I do because I feel as though it's sort of coming through me mm. rather than from me. So I think you know, it's if, for that channel to remain open, I can't become at all self-important or attached to success. Uh huh. Is does it feel like there's temptations in that way that you have to sort of be aware of and pay attention to? Or does it feel like you've, you know, from your transformational experience that you're very grounded in? Uh, um, you know. Well, what, what, what I think helps me is the fact that I've got three young children who don't take me seriously at all. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they say, oh, so there's spiritual dad. So there's spiritual dad again, you yeah. know, so they kind of make fun of me when I try to be uh, spiritual. But uh, no, it's it's all um, you know. It's it's a good balance, you know. I, I have a kind of a life outside my my books and my teaching, you know. A lot of a lot of people I I'm friendly with don't know anything about my books or my teachings. So it's it's good to. Have, I think when you're rooted in family life and when you're rooted rooted in social life, that's a really good grounding. Family life, especially, is a great grounding that stops you getting too puffed up with uh -huh. your self importance. Yeah, I mean, I found that when my kids were little, it was as easy for me to get more puffed, puffed up in resistance to them. You know, like yeah. they, they would be, you know, misbehaving, let's say, in a public place. And, and 
my response could be very over the top in a, in a harmful way because my ego was so threatened by people saying, well, look at Howie. He can't control his kids or he's not a good parent. Um, mm. You know, what, what, what is the thought process that I can go through? I mean, you know, my, they're in their 20s now, so that's not the issue. But still, I can see I can feel, you know, slings and arrows towards my ego on a regular mm. basis. Mm. How, 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 from your understanding of what the awakening process is like, what are some good ways to metabolize those impulses? Um, I, I, I feel that once, if I maintain a state, a state of inner balance, um, you know, meditation is a great way of doing this. I meditate every day in the morning. It's a great way of sort of rooting myself at the essence of my being, where I become free of sort of, uh, thoughts and desires and, and concern as well, you know, free of concern about what other people think. Because it's, it's very easy to fall into that mode where we care about other people's opinions. Mm. But, um, but you know, when, when you're sort of in tune with yourself, you realise it doesn't really matter. You know, people forget very quickly anyway, even if they do, you know, form opinions about you, they're very quickly forgotten. And it's very incidental and very trivial. So, you know... It's about it's about it's about going beneath the surface of your mind, allowing the surface of your mind to settle to, until it becomes very calm, and then you're in tune with the the deeper levels of your being. I find contact with nature is fantastic. You know, sometimes sometimes I find myself getting concerned about politi- politics you know, uh-huh. and watch the news. And um, I won't go into detail, but in the UK we've got a few sort of political issues going on. Uh, you know. <laughs> You've had issues in America. So sometimes I find myself watching the news and get a bit wound up. So, oh, I can't stand this guy. You know, what's go- why do we have to put up with this? But then I, I go, go, into, go for a walk in the woods or in the park. And it all fades away. You know, it's, it's, it's ephemeral. You know, the thing about nature is it's so, you know, the timeline of nature is so vast. You know, there are trees on my park that have been there for 500 years. Mm. And, you know, it's you realise that, affairs in politics or in society are very ephemeral and in some cases quite trivial and once you get once you once i anchor myself in that you know stillness in the stillness of nature and, the, and in the stillness within myself then these things cease to matter you know it's, it's amazing how how they can fade into insignificance if you're in the right frame of being mm. but i want to push you on that a little bit because at the same time some of these political issues that we're talking about lead to consequences for other human beings that are very painful, right? So how, how do you, how do you maintain that sort of equanimity and spiritual um, gravity when you see suffering around you? I I understand your point because, uh, you know, you know, in, in sort of not being affected by these political issues, you know, not being, not feeling negativity in response to them. It doesn't mean that you, you're not concerned about them, that you shouldn't act against them. But I think you actually act more effectively when it comes from a place of equilibrium. When you act from a place of anger or irritation, it, it doesn't turn out very well. You know, you get frustrated and flustered. The action gets constricted and, and kind of diluted or distorted. So if you can act from an, you know, place of equanimity, you can act in, in a more effective way. It's like a, the, the environment is important. You know, I feel very passionately about environmental issues. And I take them really, really seriously because they're probably the most serious problem that the human race is facing. And that connects to politics because, you know, some politicians deny the reality of environmental problems. But, you know, I've got, I've got a friend who's incredibly gloomy about the future of the human race. You know, and he's really quite depressed about it because the future does look quite bleak in environmental terms but it doesn't really do any good because it kind of his depression informs every aspect of his life and it hinders his behavior and his actions Mm. so you've got to act from a place of equanimity a, a place of even contentment and then you can you know you can be much more effective and also you know when you're constricted by negativity nothing really flows through you. You have to allow yourself to be a channel and you can be a channel of, of positive action if you're in a state of equilibrium. Mm. Yeah, I can. I, I, I feel, 
a kind of self-accusation as I listen to you around like the, I can get so gloomy that I'm actually living in the future that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. And it's about acceptance as well. You know, you have to accept that there is a limited, you know, you can't change the world completely. You can't change the future completely, but you can take effective action. You can do the right thing. It's about doing the right thing. You've got to do the right thing. And um, gloominess, you know, in a sense, it's natural. It's it's kind of inevitable in a sense. But it doesn't really do any good. You know, you have to sort of transcend it, and but still take appropriate and effective action. Right. And I, and I can see, and I think it's pretty easy for people who, are, who have an activist bent or who care about things to see that gloominess and depression uh, and pessimism don't necessarily help. But on the other hand, it's really hard for me, and I know it's hard for others, us, to give up our anger. Because mm, it feels mm. like if, without my anger, I would just sit on the couch and, you know, eat uh, bonbons. Uh, well, I'm not sure if you would, really. <laughs> I mean, it is anger. I don't think anger can ever be really positive. You know, it feels like maybe it leads to engagement. It leads to activity. But I think the most effective activity does not come from anger, but comes from a, a place of like openness. You know, like the, the greatest social activists in history have been very spiritually developed people, you know, like Gandhi, uh, Martin Luther King, um, Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, and so on and so forth. And they, they didn't seem to me to be angry people. Uh, they, they were passionate, but it wasn't from a place of anger. It was a, a place of, you know, from a place of universal compassion and empathy and knowing that something was wrong. Mm. Not, you know, not egoically wrong, but deeply universally wrong, having sort of powerful moral principles of right, rightness and allowing themselves to be channels of, of, of goodness. So that, I think that's the most important thing to, to be open so that you can be a channel of goodness. Mm, I, I love that. And of course you, you write about Nelson Mandela in the book, in the in the context of freedom in prison, right? So you know he had, he 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 apparently he went in quite angry, right? Like he was a yeah, a, that's right, a violent revolutionary. Um, he you know grew up as a as a boxer, and tw- I guess twenty seven years gave him a far greater power than the fist. That's right. Yeah, he was a good example of the the kind of self examination and self exploration that I talked about earlier. And he found wisdom in prison just through exploring his own being, through analyzing his own behavior and his own thought processes. And he found a, a contentment, a kind of stillness inside himself. You know, when, when you live at the level of action, which can be, you know, it can be very effective and positive, but you kind of live on living on the surface. So you need to go deep inside yourself. And then you, you know, you find a kind of inner contentment inside yourself and you act from that place rather than from the surface place. And that's when, you know, Nelson Mandela, he's a great example because, you know, nobody was more effective than him in, you know, enacting positive change in his country and in, even in the whole world. And it came from that place of inner contentment, not from, not from anger. Mm-hmm. There's also uh, a guy I talk about in the book called Sri Aurobindo, uh-huh. the Indian spiritual teacher. He was also, um, you know, he was a, a, a political activist in India in the early 20th century, fighting against British rule, the colonial system. And he was imprisoned by, by the British because of his political activism. Activism, And he spent a year mostly in solitary confinement. And he, he underwent a transformation, you know, is, is a really good example of the, the phenomenon we've been talking about. But afterwards, he wasn't really interested in politics anymore. You know, he wanted to, he wanted to help the human beings, the human race in a different way. So he became a spiritual teacher and author because he wanted to, you know, he realized that politics was not the be end all. You know, it was only, it was kind of superficial in, in his mind when he wanted to help the human race on a level of consciousness. So that became the goal of the rest of his life. Right. Well, I mean, it seems like there's a, you know, a similarity in that there, it's a push for liberation and it's just a, a different understanding. Like you can, you can live in a, society that's on the surface gives you freedom and if you are you know addicted to um you know consumerism and as you say consumption and an egoic 
concerns, then arguably you're a puppet. You're not actually free to make your own choices. That's right. In fact, there's a guy in my book, a prisoner, who said that. He said that he never realized how free he was until he was in prison. He never realized he was actually in prison when he lived outside in normal society because his mind was imprisoned by egoic desires and egoic feelings and, you know, narrow personal thoughts, narrow personal desires. But in prison, he realized that there was a kind of freedom inside him through letting go of those thoughts and desires and fears. So, yes, it is a paradox that, you know, that freedom can be found in in prison and prison can be found in freedom. Uh, So as you started, you know, working on this particular book um, and it's, you know, it's 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 not really a book of philosophy. It's a book of stories. Right. Just one story after another that kind of, you know, kind of weave together to, to create this this point. What was the story that you heard that first told you? Okay, there's a there's a book here beyond my own experience. What was the one that kind of really landed with you? The first one was um, it was a woman called Irene who a friend told me about. I told my friend that I was interested in this area, and he said, "Oh, you got to speak to my friend Irene. She's she's had an amazing spiritual transformation." And Irene was a she was a kind of professional woman, very very dedicated to her career. She said she was a workaholic. I think she was an IT manager for a pharmaceutical company. Very, very driven. But she became ill with cancer when she was 42 years old. And the cancer was quite advanced. She was told that she only had maybe six months to a year left to live. But rather than being completely broken down by the diagnosis, she she felt strangely liberated. She said that, you know, it was the first time that she'd been aware of death and she'd realized what a privilege it is to be alive. And everything around her changed. She walked outside the consulting room and everything looked so beautiful and real. You know, the trees seemed to be vibrating with energy. The air seemed to be full of a kind of radiance. And she'd never realized how beautiful the world was until that moment. And she felt this incredible sense of meaning, even though she was, she'd just been told that she may die quite soon. Uh, it was as if like, the scales had fallen from her eyes, as if she'd just literally woken up mm-hmm. to this new, meaningful world. And she thought it would fade away, but it didn't. You know, it kind of de-intensified after a few weeks, but it remained at a more stable level. Unfortunately for her, her cancer went into remission, but she retained this heightened awareness. And a lot of it was about, she had this feeling of connection that she'd never had before, a feeling of connection to nature, a feeling of like, you know, really feeling one with the, the trees or the hills or the sky. And also with other people, feeling an intense sense of empathy and compassion with other people. And it remained with her. So she she felt that she couldn't continue in her role as an IT manager. So she retrained as a a therapist and a counsellor. She started to work with other cancer patients. And it remained as a normal, stable state. So, you know, that was the the first real story of transformation that I investigated. Yeah. Boy, what that brings up for me is, you know, we say she she couldn't remain an IT manager. And you, you might also say there's nothing wrong with being an IT manager. No, no, right? not at all. But, but what, I'm, what I'm wondering, if if everyone in the world had this experience, like what, and this is a crazy hypothetical, but like what would our society look like? What jobs would no longer exist? What <laughs> industries would no longer exist? Like what would the world look like if it were filled with people who understood who they were. Wow, that would be great. It would be wonderful. But obviously certain industries wouldn't be as uh, prominent. The alcohol industry wouldn't be as active. <laughs> you know? um, drug dealers would probably you know, be out of a job. Um, you know, Commercials on TV wouldn't be as prevalent because people wouldn't have the, the urge to buy unnecessary things. So a whole load of things, the whole consumerist industry, the whole consumerist ethos of society would fade away. Maybe not disappear completely, but it would fade away. Um, but I think, Pete, you know, the important thing to remember is that you can still function in this mode. And in fact, you can function very well. And some of the people I spoke to in the book said that they didn't change jobs, but they, they actually became a lot better at their jobs, at their jobs. And they changed their attitudes to the job. Like, for example, one woman was... Um, she was a personnel manager at a dermatology clinic in America. 
And she said that before her transformation, she'd been mainly concerned about profit. But afterwards, you know, she still carried on with the job, but she felt that her main concern was people's well-being. You know, she was crazily, madly concerned that people felt good and had the best value. And so she actually became a lot better at her job. So there's just a shift in focus from accumulation to contribution or from from taking to giving. Mm. That actually means that people become better at the jobs. And it would mean that the whole of society would function in a much, much, you know, much more positive way. Yeah. I mean, when I think of accumulation, the, you know, in nature, you know, the squirrels will bury some nuts and, you know, the the fruit and nut trees will mast and, you know, overproduce, but it's all, it's, there's, there's some prudence to a little bit of excess, but no, there's nothing in nature like the way human beings accumulate out of, out mm. of fear. Right. So it seems like the, like what ha- like the transformation is somehow the, the dropping of some kind of fear. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think it's, um, it's a, it's a loss of separation. I think most human beings live in a mode of separation. We feel that the world is other to us. We're kind of inside ourselves. Mm. The world is out there. And I think that sense of separateness creates anxiety. It also creates a sense of lack, a sense that you're not complete. So I think the impulse to accumulate stems from this feeling of lack. You know, you, you accumulate you accumulate material possessions or success or power because you want to feel more complete. You want to add things to yourself because you feel, you know, you feel a sense of lack. Mm. So I think that's the root of it. But of course, it never works. You know, no matter how many things you accumulate, the sense of lack never goes away, which is why people are never satisfied. They accumulate more and more and more. And it just leads, you know, to, to a dead end. It leads to a, a vicious cycle of frustration. Mm. So no, nobody's walking around, you know, hoping for a trauma. Right. Nobody's like, boy, I hope I get put in jail so I can finally have this, you know, spiritual experience. No one's hoping for a near death experience or suicide of a loved one or to be caught in a war zone. And at the same time, none of us can predict what's going to happen. Right. We can we can just as you say, like we can have all these buffers and all this money and all this, you know, but nothing nothing's for certain. How do you um advise people who, you know, like, I don't expect a trauma. There's nothing like I'm not looking up and seeing a comet speeding towards my house. But how, how do you, how do you, um, how do you advise people in my position, just sort of normally going through life to prepare hmm. mentally for the possibility that a trauma could occur so that it doesn't break me, but maybe breaks me open. Hmm. There are two things, two, probably two really important things. The first one is to to be aware that crises can and do have transformational potential, and and they they are a tool of personal development if you respond to them in the right way, which means responding with openness and acceptance rather than avoidance. A lot of people understandably avoid turmoil and trauma when it occurs; they repress it or divert themselves from it or they medicate themselves so they don't have to face it. So you have to face it and accept it, and then it can be transformational. And I think the very fact that, you know, knowing that there is a kind of golden transformational core within traumatic events can make us, you know, can increase our capacity to deal with them. You know, we we don't have to be afraid of them because they can bring personal development. You know, they're, they're bound to occur. You know, everyone's going to go through trauma and suffering at some point. It's part of human experience. So, you know, so don't be afraid of them because they do have this core of transformational potential. And the second thing is that human beings are much more resilient than we normally uh, perceive, perceive ourselves to be. One thing I found through writing the book was that there's this incredible resilience inside people which is which only really appears when we are tested. When our lives are running smoothly and comfortably, then there's no need for us to sort of dig inside ourselves to find the resilience, to find the inner strength. But when terrible situations occur, or any kind of crisis, we do go deeper inside ourselves and we unearth this resilience, this deep, deep resilience, inner strength and competence and confidence. 
So it's always there. So everyone has it. It's just that we don't know about it because we've never been tested. Hmm. But when you are tested, you'll find that you do have the reserves to cope with it. You know, I, I, I did some research about the experiences of people in the Soviet gulags or in the Nazi concentration camps. And some people, you know, faced with the most terrible and brutal conditions that human beings can experience, they found amazing kind of reserves inside themselves which were able to, which enabled them to cope and to overcome the situations or to survive, but also to overcome the situations. So, you know, we are, we are amazingly resilient uh, creatures. So it's, it's, important, it's important to remember that. Yeah, I mean, what that brings up for me is, you know, there are physiological trauma responses, right, around, uh, specifically around shutting down, right? Just, you know, like, mm-hmm. like, an, like a, a mouse in the jaws of a cat will, will go catatonic and limp. Human beings can do the same thing. And, and it's, it's, it's not something that we decide to do. It's not like, oh, I think it's a good idea to faint now. It's just, you know, the, the body takes over. And I'm wondering how, how the mind can mediate that where some where you think normally in the situation of mortal peril where there's no escape there's no fight there's no flight um, there's no social engagement that some some organisms will shut down some people will will fold and go into deep depression and catatonia whereas others through their interpretation of it can actually move into you know can you know ball up and protect themselves, but then bounce back. And I'm, I'm wondering, are there, mm. are there practices that can prepare me for, for that eventuality? Sort of like, you know, daily ways of being and thinking that can make it more likely that I'll respond generatively following mm-hmm. the trauma. Again, it's a lot to do with uh, uh, acknowledgement and acceptance and also openness. I mean, in, in, in the research into post-traumatic growth, um, psychologists have found that people who have an attitude of openness, who have the personality trait of openness, are more likely to experience post-traumatic growth. It's because, you know, they don't, sh- they don't shut themselves down. They're more likely to open themselves up to the situation. They're more likely to face up to it and to let go of resistance to it. And that's when transformation occurs. Mm. Interestingly, there's some research that suggests that women are more likely to undergo post-traumatic growth maybe because there's you know maybe a slight more um, more developed quality of openness and kind of intuitive openness but that's an important factor being open and acknowledging rather than avoiding the situation but i think sometimes it happens that's that sounds a little bit like bad news because open isn't openness one of the big five like the personality traits that you're born with and you keep your whole life so is is it well no i don't think so uh, I, I, I think human beings are tremendously adaptable and flexible. You know, we, we can change up our personality traits. So there's obviously maybe a degree of inheritance involved in it, but fundamentally we have control over our own personalities. We, we can change ourselves, you know, over a long period of time, even over a short period of time. That's, you know, even in mainstream psychology, mainstream science, there's a phenomenon of neuroplasticity, mm-hmm. which shows you how malleable and flexible the brain is. And the same applies to the mind, you know, it's, it's incredibly flexible. Oh, good. <laughs> I feel better. Sorry, I, I interrupted <laughs> you. you. You had more to say about openness. Um, what was I going to say? I can't remember now. Oh, no. <laughs> um, sorry, I've forgotten. <laughs> I, should, I should have kept my mouth shut. Um, it'll, it'll come back to me in a moment. So what, one of the things I do um, as a coach is that my methodology asks people to look at the upsides of things that are of their problems, of things that are bothering them in terms of like, so we're trying to accomplish something, this problem, which we can focus on as a negative, we say like, how is this a potential springboard? How is this an opportunity? And I'm wondering if that hmm. kind of thinking um, can predispose us to be able to deal with like the overwhelming traumatic problems more, more fruitfully. Definitely. Yeah, it's a question. I guess it's connected to openness. If you have a a positive attitude to situations or events, if you do look on the positive aspects to them, it will definitely predispose you to 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 growth. One thing I found was that people who have a more kind of controlling attitude, it was even linked to professions, people who were, who were in the kind of high status professions, 
where they needed to be controlling or kind of authoritarian, like head teachers, for example, maybe lawyers. Um, they were kind of less likely to undergo transformation or post-traumatic growth. Because there's something about, I'm not saying that people in certain professions are less likely, but it was a kind of like a controlling egoic attitude that was sometimes linked to very high status roles. Hmm. When, when you have that kind of controlling attitude, then that seems to block the transformational potential because it relies on sort of being open again. You know, if, you're, if your boundaries are fixed and solid, then nothing's going to be able to get through. So you have to be, you have to be sort of malleable and permeable to, for the potential, for, for the transfer, transformational potential to get through. Hmm. I wonder how that relates to research that people who are in high status positions and situations are less empathetic. Right. Like, there's, you know, there's a great study about the BMW drivers are less likely to stop. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> crosswalk. Yeah. And the, the, there's research showing that poor people give away a higher percentage of their income than rich people. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it's well, there, there may be a link there. I mean, you know, there, there've been a lot of studies about the dark triad personality. You know, the, the dark triad means the, the personality traits of psychopathy um, narcissism and Machiavellianism and people who have those traits, which obviously means a lack of empathy, they tend to rise into very high status positions because they are quite ruthless. They are good at manipulating people. Uh, they, don't, they don't really care about hurting people. Huh. They're willing to exploit people. So I'm not saying that everybody in high status positions is like that, but if you do, you know, if you do have those traits and it's quite likely that you'll become a, a very successful politician or a, or a business leader, you know, a sort of HEO of a major company. Hmm. That's fascinating. Empa- I mean, a lack of empathy is, um, you know, it's quite good for your career. Yeah. <laughs> it's bad for everybody else, but it's quite good for your salary. Right. Of course, that's only true in certain types of societies, right? I, w- I would argue, the- at least theoretically, that in a in a traditional indigenous society that psychopathy would not be rewarded that you wouldn't you wouldn't let that person be the leader in a community where everyone knows each other i agree certainly i mean um indigenous societies tend to be very egalitarian and they they often don't have authoritarian figures they tend to have democratic processes of making decisions they can they tend to share power and I think the most important thing that a lot of indigenous societies do is they don't let people choose to become leaders. They they choose leaders, but they don't wait for somebody to say, I want to be the leader. <laughs> like in our society, in you know, in Western democracies, we wait for people to say, I want to be a senator, I want to be a member of parliament, I'm gonna put myself forward. Which, you know, that's how it works in our societies. But it would be better if we chose, if we looked for altruistic, sensible, responsible people and we said, You'd be a good leader. You know, you should be a leader. But we do it the other way around. Mm. So yeah, there I mean, are also societies like you know in in Western Europe. This, there are the Scandinavian countries, which tend to be very egalitarian, and they don't they don't put a high uh, um, they don't give high status to um, you know ruthless amoral people. They tend to be quite humble and non hierarchical, just like indigenous societies, mm. and they tend to function much better than other societies. Mm. You know, which I mean, one of the things I'm wondering about is it seems to me that, you know, trauma happens and it happens in nature. It happens to trees. It happens to animals. It happens to, to humans. And yet when I look at, at the the structure, the support structure of, of an indigenous society, I see a community that's able to sort of buffer trauma and, and allow for healing and I don't see that in our society. And so, you know, you have to write a book about these things that sort of happen accidentally and spontaneously um, because there is no system, except the, the one exception is in, in prison, right? You write about organizations that look at prison and say, this is a perfect ground for awakening. Let's go in and make it mm. happen. You talk a little bit about like those organizations and how they how they use it. In the UK, there's a great organization called the Prison Phoenix Trust, 
uh, which started when there was a woman who was doing research for a uh, an organization which collected examples of religious or spiritual experiences. And she realized that they were getting a lot of examples of experiences from prisoners. So she decided to do a research project about spirituality in prison. And she became aware that there was a lot of spiritual potential in prison. A lot of prisoners were, were reporting spiritual experiences and spiritual development. Nothing to do with religion. It was, you know, it was just like personal change. Um, you know, kind of a new experience of themselves or a new experience of the world around them. So she started this organization called the Prison Phoenix Trust to support spirituality in prisons. They began to run yoga classes, meditation classes, and also just to, to give give out books about spirituality. Again, you know, in totally non-religious um, uh, sense. And, you know, so now they, they run meditation sessions and yoga sessions in about 10% of UK institutions, um, you know, incarceration, uh, institutions of incarceration, which is quite a lot. And they have, they have great results. You know, they, they collect examples of spiritual development in, the, in prisoners. They have a monthly newsletter where prisoners write in and uh, talk about the effects of meditation. And a lot of them do report transformational experiences, you know, um, a new sense of empathy, a new sense of control over their own behavior, and most of all, a new sense of well-being, you know, a sense of finding something deeper inside themselves. Mm. Uh, um, I was taking me somewhere. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I guess, the, you know, it must be painful, though, to suddenly <clears throat> have a sense of empathy if you have been a ruthless psychopath. How, how does that work? It can be painful. Hmm. Well, um, there's one guy I write, I write about in, in the book, an American prisoner called Ed, who was um, he was sent to prison when he was well, he was sentenced when he was 15. Uh, he would have he would have this was in Arkansas. He would have died if he'd been 16, mm-hmm. but because he was 15, he was spared the death penalty because he he committed um, a murder in a kind of you know manslaughter uh, in a robbery. He killed somebody during a robbery. And for t- for ten years he was in a state of turmoil and turbulence in prison. He had very bad, very traumatic experiences in prison. He was very frustrated and very aggressive. But um, but he began to. He was the guy I mentioned earlier. He realised that there was no, there was so much turbulence outside him that he could only go inside himself. So he started to sort of spontaneously meditate, which meant he just sort of closed his eyes and focused on his breath and count to ten as he breathed in and out. He didn't know what meditation was, but it was just kind of instinctive, and he did it every day several times a day for three months. And suddenly he had this amazing experience when something just sort of gave way inside him. Something kind of melted away inside him. And he started to cry. He said it was the first time in his life that he started to cry. And he said it was the first time that he'd felt empathy. He felt this ter- terrible sense of sadness for the people he'd hurt in the past, for the family of the, pe- of the person he'd killed, for his own family. And he started to cry in compassion for all the suffering he'd caused. Mm. So it was it was painful, but at the same time, it was a, a tremendous opening of his soul, if you like. He became a, a, a real human being rather than this sort of aggressive young young man who was full of frustration and fear. So it, it was a kind of the birth of a new self inside him because his self ex, self exploration and gaining touch with something, some kind of deeper essence inside himself broke down this wall of fear and frustration and, and enabled him to develop empathy. So yeah, it can be painful, but it's also, it's also, there's also a sense that there's something authentic about empathy and there's something, you know, tremendously positive about it. So it, it, it's, it, you know, it's both negative and positive, but it's overall, it's an opening. It's a shift to a higher level of functioning. Right. So, so in, in closing, you know, you've shared all these stories and, you know, it's certainly not the majority, but it's certainly not, uh, you know, lightning striking. There's, there's, right, there, there, and there's this whole tribe of people that you identify as the shifters, right, who have had these experiences. And in the context of you and I looking at the news and saying, like, there is so much that's going wrong, what, what do you see this, you know, is the the potential of this tribe that you you know 
a, uh, a founding and, and expressing member of that includes so many other people and that people like me would would love to join without having to go through the, <laughs> the pain. <laughs> like what what um, like what do you what do you see as the potential for the future of this? Like, is, is, is this part of the vanguard of, you know, homo spiritualis? Like, can we can we survive ourselves? I, I hope so. I think that's the effect it will have. I think it, these people have a tremendously healing effect on society. You know, prisoners cease to be cease to be criminals. They they um, re, rehab, rehabilitate themselves and begin to give to society, to their fellow human beings. People begin to contribute much more to their fellow human beings rather than taking. People lose the, the materialistic impulse to accumulate and live a life of simplicity and, and contentment. So in that sense, you know, they have a healing effect. But much more so, I think that we, we do live in a time of crisis, as we mentioned earlier. And my feeling is that the crisis that we are, the crises that we are living through, including the potential death of our species, or, or certainly, you know, major catastrophic events that will affect our species in a major way. Um, I think these crises are in, are there in themselves having an awakening effect. So I think collectively, large groups of human beings, large numbers of human beings throughout the world are experiencing the kind of transformation which a lot of people experience individually. In a sense, we're, we're a bit like cancer patients who've been told that they only have a certain amount of time left to live. That has an awakening effect on people. So I think that the crises that we are facing can have a, or are having a similarly awakening effect. Mm, that is fascinating. Um... So for people who want to find out more, you mentioned that you write blog posts. How can people stay abreast of your work and follow you? The best place is my website, which is stephenmtaylor.com. And that's, that's with Stephen a, with, a v, with a V, Steve. M for Mark. Yeah, stephenmtaylor.com. Uh, that's got links to my social media and um, lots of essays and poems. I write poetry too, so a lot of poems there. And uh, yeah, that's the kind of like the central hub where they can find out further information. Great, great. And one, one last question, since you mentioned that you were a musician, is there music that you listen to that uplifts you these days? Oh, yeah. I'm always listening to music. What, yeah, recently I've been... Well, I've, I've been rediscovering the Beatles. Everyone knows the Beatles, but I've been rediscovering them uh, because it's a long time since I listened. And I've realized that there's a lot of kind of spirituality in the Beatles music. Like, uh, you know the song Across the Universe? Yeah. Do you know that one? Uh -huh. Yeah, it's, it's such a be beautiful spiritual song. There's this uh, line where John Lennon sings, limitless, undying love that shines around me like a million suns. It's just, just beautiful. And the song Tomorrow Never Knows, which is like their first psychedelic classic uh -huh. based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. It's really beautiful. Great. And even the song, Let it, everyone, everyone knows the song, Let It Be. But yeah. I once, um, I asked, you know, Eckhart Tolle, the, the famous author? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I asked him once, what's, what's your favorite song? And he said, Let It Be by the Beatles. <laughs> I thought, wow. So I went back to listen to it and I thought, yeah, Let It Be. It's about acceptance. It's about, you know, letting go. So it's, it's again, it's a, a great spiritual song. Great. All right. So I'll put the I'll put links to the to YouTube uh, renditions of that so folks can <laughs> can reacquaint themselves with the classics. Um, the book is called Extraordinary Awakenings When Trauma Leads to Transformation. Steve Taylor, thank you so much for the work you do and for taking the time today. All right. Show notes and video at plantyourself.com slash 505. Let's get right to it. We got movement news. I was in San Francisco last week and I had an extra three days there unexpectedly. And I decided to just walk and try to build my calves on those hills. So I did about 40,000 steps a day for a couple of days and then um, fewer. But then I played three hours of ultimate and goaltimate. Never played goaltimate before. Uh, look it up. Ultimate with, with G-O-A-L-T-I-M-A-T-E. Uh, it was really cool down in Golden Gate Park. So I'm still recovering from that. Um, garden news, not much is going on. Um, just sort of, you know, buying seeds, fantasizing, and thinking about what we want to do for this summer.
All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatterley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzet, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends. 